May it please the court, my name is Alan Gilbert. Um, I'm a member of the Minnesota Attorney General's Office, and I represent the state of Minnesota in this matter. This is an extremely important case for the state of Minnesota, for not only the students who were deceived by respondents, but also the future enforcement by the Attorney General of Minnesota's consumer protection statutes in cases of systematic widespread fraud that impacts a large number of consumers. Based on the district court's undisputed findings in this case, respondents knowingly and in bad faith engaged in widespread systematic fraud regarding their criminal justice program in two different respects. As the court specifically determined, respondents both affirmatively misrepresented and failed to disclose material facts regarding a student's ability to become a Minnesota police officer or probation officer by attending respondent's criminal justice program. Contrary to respondent's representations and recommendations to prospective students, and as respondents clearly knew, a degree in that program did not in any way qualify a student to become a Minnesota police officer. Similarly, respondents falsely represented and again recommended to students who wanted to be a Minnesota probation officer the criminal justice program's two-year associate degree program, even though they knew that at least a four-year bachelor's degree was required to work as a probation officer in the state of Minnesota. The court also found that respondents engaged in their wrongful conduct with the intent, with the intent that consumers rely on their deception. So based on the facts, the nature and scope of the deception, and the logical consequences of this egregious fraud, the court found a causal nexus between respondents' wrongful conduct and injury to students who enrolled in the criminal justice program to become either a Minnesota police or probation officer. The court made the unremarkable finding that the injury to such a student was inevitable and foreseeable. In other words, as the court indicated, it defies common sense that students who wanted to be a Minnesota police officer would enroll in respondents' $20,000 per year criminal well, justice So what do program. we do about the fact that, as I understand it, you correct me if I'm wrong, yes. that there is no evidence in the record relating to anyone other than these 15 direct victims as to the damages, the causal connection with these other parties and the damages they suffered. Um, is that a problem here, and if not, why not? Well, it's not a problem because of the court's decisions in Alpine Air and Group Health, uh, for starters, as well as analogous federal law interpreting the Federal Trade Commission Act. Uh, this court has already said that if there's a pattern and practice of fraud, or if there is a long-time fraud that affects a large number of consumers, that you do not need to show individual reliance. You don't need to do it. And that's precisely what this court said in the group health case. And that's precisely what had occurred in the Alpine Air case. But uh, counsel, I, I think that um, one of the points being made here is that there, you didn't prove 
that pattern in practice, that systematic, widespread, because all you had, all the state had was the evidence that these 15 students testified to, which there's, you know, opposing counsel says was anecdotal and didn't, didn't any, in any way show that there was some broad overarching um, uh, issue. And so what, what finding of the district court points us to um, that broad systematic, uh, because I, I think, you know, there's certainly a, a strong argument you make that Alpine and Group Health stand for that proposition. Certainly, Your Honor, and thank you for the question, and I do want to get into those, the details of the facts here, because the facts are critical here, and it's important to note that the other side does not challenge these facts. The facts are undisputed. They must be deemed to be true. But the, the first point, the first finding by the district court that supports the causal nexus finding is what the court referred to as the pervasiveness of respondents', respondents false and deceptive practices based on testimony of respondents, of respondents' managers, of respondents' employees, <coughs> based upon documentation of respondents, their solicitations, and, and I'm quoting from the court's opinion, solicitations, mass advertising, and their internal training materials. The court even noted that respondents' own expert admitted this is direct proof of respondents' systematic practices. Counsel, and what if you could, what specifically, what, what page are you on? Because the order's long, obviously. So what findings are you reading from? Um, I am reading, uh, Your Honor, I don't know if I have the page number to, to that, but... Uh, Your Honor, I don't have the page number at my fingertips, but this is set can, forth in our briefing so in going. detail yeah. with the citations, okay. Your Honor. This Thank isn't you. anything new. Um, and that's the first point, the pervasiveness. And that's the first point relied on by the court. The court also found, and this is significant as well, that most, again, I'm quoting, most prospective students interested in the criminal justice program wanted to be a Minnesota police or probation officer. That's direct proof of how many people were affected by this. Most of the students wanted to be police officers or probation officers. Third, third finding. Yes. Uh, no, Your Honor, that's not. It's, it's, it's actually, and it's in our brief, it's supported by testimony of respondents. Respondents testified that most of the people who wanted to enroll in the criminal justice program wanted to be a police officer or a probation officer. Had nothing to do with those 15 students. Had to do with respondents' testimony. And then the, the third point is that respondents' marketing, this is a finding of the court, was designed to cause prospective students to meet with an admissions representative of respondents who were instructed by respondents to recommend the criminal justice program. Counsel, to, that was part of the admissions training manual, as I yes. the findings? Yes, and I'm going to get to that one, too, because that's another finding that the judge made here. But specifically, the one I'm referring to now, Your Honor, is a related proposition, and that is that the judge found that respondents specifically directed 
the admissions representatives to recommend the criminal justice program to any prospective student who wanted to be a Minnesota police officer and the two-year associate degree program to anybody who wanted to be a Minnesota probation officer. But to your point, Your Honor, what is also reflected in the record is the training materials for the, for the admissions representatives. And those training materials say the recommendation is everything. It closes the deal. Students come in and they are not really sure sometimes whether they want to go to college. And especially this population of students, which I want to refer to as well. But, but the manual says the recommendation is critical to seal the deal because they trust you. They trust you that if you recommend that program, that that program is in their best interest. The, another point, another finding, that respondents failed to disclose material facts. And those material facts are that the criminal justice program did not in any way qualify a student to become a Minnesota police officer. And that at least a bachelor's degree was necessary to be employed as a Minnesota probation officer. So as I indicated before, they made affirmative misrepresentations and they failed to disclose material facts, both of which violate the consumer fraud statutes. The judge also found that based upon what respondents instructed their staff to do, that they created a widespread misunderstanding at virtually every level of their organization regarding the requirements for becoming a Minnesota police or probation officer, which, according to the court's finding, infiltrated the sales and marketing of the criminal justice program. And the court also determined that the finding of causal nexus is supported by the logical and natural consequences resulting from respondents' widespread and systematic fraud. And I note that the Court of Appeals also recognized that the natural consequences of the evidence presented by the state were just what the court indicated, and that being it was foreseeable and inevitable that students were going to be injured. The district court also noted that its causal nexus determination was supported by direct consumer testimony, which Judge Justice Anderson is permitted as well, in addition to the circumstantial evidence. Um, and the district court also indicated that the finding of, pro of proximate cause, I'm sorry, of causal nexus, was also supported by the lack of student testimony by respondents to the contrary. So you had the state's 15 students, and you had no contrary evidence from the, the respondents. Counsel, does it tell us in the record as to how many total students there were that were part of those two programs? Uh, from 2009 till 2015, approximately between 1,200 and 1,300, Your Honor. Counsel, I'd like to ask you uh, about a hypothetical student. Let's say there's a student who wanted to become a police officer, got the school's marketing materials and so on, uh, but also actually read the form that you have to fill out when you apply that says, um, I realize this, uh, the, the school is not post-certified, and I realize this prevents me from being eligible, et cetera. And let's say that if that hypothetical student had testified, he or she would have said, yeah, I, I, I knew all the marketing stuff was phony, and I relied on the application. Would that hypothetical student be able to recover in this restitution process? 
Oh, that's a good question, Your Honor. I, I think it depends on the facts at that point. Now, the district court judge, as you well know. The, the student says, <clears throat> I didn't re rely on any of this, yeah. this stuff from the schools. Yeah. I, I, I knew what the score was. Well, first of all, Your Honor, I would submit to you that that's not going to happen because a student who actually knows that they can't become a police officer is not going to enroll in that program and spend $80,000 to get nothing out of it. So if the student Daddy's actually Daddy's got a lot of money. It was... It, well, Your Honor, my, I want to... My girlfriend I, was in the program, too. Let, let, let me, let me so, comment uh, on that. So bear, bear with me. Okay. Imagine that, that hypothetical is, okay. is true. Would that hypothetical student be entitled to recover? Um, Your Honor, again, the condition per the application uh, and the claim process is that they, they actually enrolled in the program with the understanding that they'd be able to be a police officer in Minnesota by completing that program. So if they didn't actually believe it, no, they wouldn't qualify under those circumstances. And so is there, is there a form for the restitution process that the court ordered where a student would have to certify that they, uh, they were defrauded? Under oath, okay. they have to do that. But Your Honor, in, in terms of Can your I question. Just, yes. Oh, answer that question first. Oh, okay. Just, I also wanted to just point out that the, um, the court also noted that the students who enrolled in respondents' programs were primarily non-traditional students, and that's the phraseology used by the court. And Counsel, that actually goes directly to one of the findings that I wanted to ask you yep. about and I want to ask opposing counsel about, which I find the most troubling, which just says admission Admissions representatives were instructed that they were selling a feeling, an attitude that included painting the dream of a better future and finding, quote, pain points in students' lives such as poverty, underemployment, or being a single parent. Thank you, Your Honor, for pointing that out. And that's precisely why I'm raising this point. The what you mean when you're referring to non-traditional yes, students? Yes, I am, Your Honor. And the court actually defined what he meant by non-traditional students, which is directly relevant to what you just asked, Your Honor. He defined non-traditional students as those who are generally students who are low income and face existing debt burdens, students unfamiliar with college admissions, single parents, and students with little family support. This is a group of vulnerable people. And that's what the court indicated with this particular finding. And so I do want to point out, Justice Lillyhog, that this wouldn't include people who have $80,000 just to go to a program that wouldn't qualify them to be a Minnesota police officer. But that probably goes without saying. Very few people have that kind of money. Let me, uh, I'd like to go to this question of the presumption. Um, let's assume for the moment that uh, we don't agree with you, and we choose not to adopt uh, or reject your argument that uh, there should be a presumption here. Is that fatal to your claims here, and if not, why not? No, it's not fatal, and, Your Honor, we have argued in the alternative, and, and frankly, Your Honor, it's strictly in the alternative, that if you think a presumption isn't permitted by law, then the claims process should still proceed. And, and the, again, we went through an analysis in our briefing as to why the claim process was properly ordered by the court, that it's an abuse of discretion standard. Um, there's lots of examples of claims processes that are used, especially in government enforcement actions, to make sure that the public is, is remediated in terms of their harm. Um, so that shouldn't be an issue. 
the, the claim process clearly was ordered by the court, and he didn't abuse his discretion in that regard. In terms of the presumption, Your Honor, again, I, I'm going to emphasize, we don't even think there's a question that a presumption is permitted by law. Uh, to conclude that it's not, would ha you have to interpret the precise language of group health as not requiring a presumption when footnote 11 of group health says the opposite. It very clearly says that a presumption is permitted. Uh, and they use the word presumption. And then you have the analogous FTC case law that expressly adopts presumptions. And the Kitco case is a prime example of that. That was a decision by Judge Diana Murphy where she found that a presumption is appropriate in terms of FTC law where there's material misrepresentations made, they are widely disseminated, and the product is purchased by, by consumers. And she found that as a result, the presumption then applies and the burden shifts to the other side to show that there, that there was no harm uh, incurred on behalf of the consumers. Um, the, Judge Murphy's opinion was actually adopted by the Eighth Circuit later on. Um, there's, the, I, I think uniformly, the Circuit Courts of Appeals adopt standards of that, uh, of that kind. Um, Judge Murphy indicated, as have many other cases, that it would really thwart the ability of government agencies or of the FTC to be able to enforce consumer protection statutes without that kind of provision. Um, the U-Haul case that this court cited in the group health case indicated, um, and, and I'd like to actually quote that, um, U-Haul case, again, relied on in group health, in footnote 11, says that he who has attempted to deceive should not complain when required to bear the burden of rebutting a presumption that he succeeded, which makes a lot of sense to me. And is there Minnesota case law that, that says that as well? Yes, Your Honor. And we've cited, not that precise language, but we've cited to cases that go back to 1911 in Minnesota that do create a presumption in situations like this. And they actually dealt with common law and they actually dealt with one-on-one -on -one situations, and they still said a presumption is appropriate. The cases that we're relying on, like group health, the FTC case law, the Kitco case that Judge Murphy decided, deals with, again, systematic widespread fraud, which is what this case is all about. And would you, as you if, if you were to kind of structure the, the rule here, first of all, we're talking about a case brought by the Attorney General. Correct. And that's the context of this case? Would, would that kind of phraseology or what have you about widespread and pervasive uh, fraud, would that be kind of the standard that you would set at least for this case? At least for this case, yes, Your Honor. Um, and it's entirely consistent with group health because they talk about a long-standing long fraud that affects a large number of consumers and then the presumptive uh, circumstances deal with deliberate fraud, um, uh, using a lot of money to deceive people, things of that kind, egregious fraud where there's not even a presumption, it's just presumed, with, and it's not even a rebuttable presumption. So um, th that's what Group Health says, which is a, a case of this court. Can I, can I ask you about the restitution? 
it's an equitable restitution remedy, and you said in the district court, or the state said, um, you know, we're actually not seeking individual damages here. And is, is, is the restitution remedy you're seeking not just to get the money back to people, but also to kind of deprive the lost profits? I mean, is there, is there something different between money damages and an equitable restitution remedy? Yes. Your Honor, there is a, a subtle difference, um, and, and it is just what you said. Um, it's that as a matter of equity, someone shouldn't be able to benefit by the profits they would otherwise get from the deception. Uh, but the, the confusion that exists perhaps in terms of the state getting restitution for individuals is that we do not actually represent the individual. We can't do that. We don't have an attorney-client relationship with them. But we do have the ability under Section 8.31, under our parents' authority, to actually collect damages on their behalf. We don't have an attorney-client relationship. And for some reason, there was confusion because we don't actually have an attorney-client relationship. Can we collect on their behalf? There should be no question that we can collect on their behalf, again, based on our parents' authority and based on Section 8.31, which specifically allows the attorney general to, to obtain damages. Counsel, I, I want to ask you about what's the state's position on how this is going to, these restitution trials are going to happen. So a student has to sign an affidavit under penalty of perjury that I relied on this and I wanted to be a cop or a police officer. Can the school challenge that? I mean, can there actually be litigation where the school says, oh, this is the most incredible person in the world and, and the affidavit is a lie and we don't owe them any money? Yeah. Again, Your Honor, there would be a presumption and they'd have to rebut the presumption. If they had evidence to rebut the presumption, then Judge Rosenbaum would have to decide whether this person uh, is entitled to money damages. Um, what um, I think it's important for the court to recognize. Is there going to be discovery? Yes, Your Honor. There, there's uh, the ability to request documentation from, from the student. We have the ability to request documentation from the school. Um, but again, the school has dealt with all of these students. They have records, and we have some of them through our discovery that we've already done. But the, the school has dealt with these students in their criminal justice program. Their instructors, their administrative uh, admissions representatives, they have information to confirm that that student wanted to be, I, I would presume that they have information to confirm that that student wanted to be a probation officer or wanted to be a police officer. They have that available to them through either their own employees um, or their own documentation. The school could offer evidence in the mini-trial that Lori Gilday, who signs an app, wasn't actually even a student here. Yes, definitely. And that would rebut the presumption. Um, but, but again, this notion of mini-trials, that's going to be up to Judge Rosenbaum. If he thinks that the presumption has been rebutted and there needs to be some evidentiary hearing as to a particular student, he would have the ability to do that. Okay. Well, I think uh, I've got a couple more minutes here, but um, I, I think I'll uh, just save my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Anthony.
Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Brooke Anthony on behalf of Minnesota School of Business and Globe University. This is a case of statutory interpretation. This court should affirm the rule of law set forth in group health that a plaintiff seeking money damages under the Consumer Fraud Act and the Minnesota Private Attorney General statute must prove wrongful conduct, harm, and a causal nexus between the two. After 17 days of trial, the district court acknowledged that it did not, it did not know who in the plaintiff's population had been harmed and what, if any, restitution was appropriate. The state had not proved what was required under group health. The district court created a new standard to fill the void in the state's evidence. It called that standard inevitable and foreseeable. The creation of that standard was an error because it was not reliance-based and it was not consistent with group health. The court then imposed a restitution process that included a rebuttable presumption of causation and harm and a potential for hundreds of many trials. That too was an error and the Court of Appeals agreed. If the state had proved its case at trial as required, there would be no need for a rebuttable presumption of causation and harm. Counsel, I'm trying to figure out if this rebuttable presumption really makes any difference in the context of these individual claims. You've got notice to the, the population of students who've taken the courses or paid the money, and then they have to put in a form that's under, uh, uh, it's an affidavit, it's under penalty of perjury, and they have to briefly describe how the school misled you into believing you could use your criminal justice degree to enter the career you checked in response to question one. So they have to describe their reliance. So um, at the end of the day, how many such cases are likely to come down to the application of a presumption? I mean, it's, they're gonna be about the evidence, aren't they? I think the short answer to your question is yes, except that it tilts the playing field in favor of the student claiming causation and harm. And so what it does is effectively create a situation where harm and causation will be effectively but, already but, proven. But it tilts the playing field only when the evidence is in equipoise and then you apply the presumption, right? No, it, it, the I mean, restitution... For all, we know, for all we know, all of these, these individual claims could be resolved by preponderance of the evidence one way or the other. As I read the restitution process, Your Honor, I think what the court did was actually imposed a presumption that causation and harm had already been proven. And so regardless of what the student says in its description of misrepresentation, it is, if, it is as though causation and harm has already been presumed to be proven, and the schools must then defend against each individual claim. So if somebody filled in number two and said, I, I can't describe how I was misled into believing this, or I didn't believe it, you think they'd still, under the district court's order, be entitled to compensation? Well, now you're, now you're entering into what I think is the, one of the biggest problems with the restitution order, which is that it does convert a parent's patriot case into individual claims like this. Certainly, there would be a defense to that situation if the student cannot describe the misrepresentation that that, that student incurred. I would represent to the court, however, that a student would simply need to say, I believed I, I wanted to be a police officer and I, could, I believed I could be. There's no really additional facts that would need to yeah, be but described. Let's say you've got my hypothetical student from my questioning of the Solicitor General who um, just says, says uh, I want the money and I didn't rely on anything. But are you interpreting the district court's order to mean that student 
could, that hypothetical student could be compensated? I see, I read the court's order as providing for that student having an opportunity to participate in the claims process in the first place, which is a problem because there was no evidence that that student should even have a right to make a claim for restitution. And I understand your argument on that. But Whether or not the claim would ultimately be rebutted is a question we don't know the answer to because, because we don't have the facts of what that, that student would put in in the claims process and how Judge Magnuson would rule. Or, sorry, not Magnuson, Rosenbaum. One of those federal judges. <laughs> One of those very respectable judges, yes. Counsel, I want to ask you about the uh, uh, response Mr. Gilbert gave me to my question to him about whether about the evidence in the record. And we were talking about the pervasiveness, the solicitations, uh, most prospective students, et cetera. Um, and he points to testimony from uh, your client and says that supports uh, the argument here. Um, is there evidence in the record that, re that links other than these 15 students uh, to causation? No, there is not. Um, there's a reason why counsel could not point your honors to a specific finding of fact as to this pervasiveness of the widespread fraud concerning criminal justice. It's because there was no finding of pervasive fraud in the context of criminal justice. It is important to keep in mind here the context of the case that the state actually tried. Criminal justice was not the sole focus of the state's case. It was not even the primary focus of the state's case. The state alleged four different areas of wrongful conduct uh, across more than 30 programs at almost 20 campuses over six years. And it, stopped, it sought restitution for more than 28,000 students. That is important because when you're thinking about the strategic determinations that the state made in offering its evidence and proving its case, that helps explain why the state did not offer certain evidence. So for example, the state did not have a policy or procedure that impacted all students with respect to criminal justice. Council conflates the admissions process with criminal justice. And I want to quickly address Justice McCaig's question about the type of students that were being served by the schools. I believe Your Honor was reading from the summary judgment decision because there is not a finding in the court's order as to um, the schools, for example, preying on students of a particular type. In fact, the court rejected the state's claim that the admissions process itself was wrongful conduct and found that the school's admissions process was lawful. And so the, the discussion that Your Honor is reading from in the summary judgment order, the district court ultimately rejected that after trial. So back to your, back to your question. Um, <clears throat> with respect to the evidence in the record about widespread systematic fraud, there is no evidence, and the marketing materials are a very good example of this. The marketing materials, there is no evidence that any of the marketing materials offered into evidence were seen by any student, were shown to any population of consumers. Why were they there then if they were not seen by any students? I mean, that, that just... I, if I, mean, I understand your question to be why were they offered at trial or why did they exist in the first place? Why would they exist in the first place if they weren't to be seen by students? They were produced, Your Honor, in connection with the CID and in that CID process, a number of different advertisements were produced, both in draft form and in actual form. Um, and the state did not ask the question as to whether or not the document was a draft, whether it was shown, or even if it was shown. Was there evidence put in that were actually Material. I mean, there were website materials. Presumably those website materials were available to the public, or is that not correct? There is no evidence in the record to support that, Your Honor. In fact, Did they many, have a website? They did, Your Honor. 
and were these materials on the website? There's no evidence in the record to suggest that these particular websites that were offered into evidence were actually on the website. Many of the advertisements were offered through individuals who did not have personal knowledge of the particular documents. And that sounds odd now, but they were being offered as evidence of wrongful conduct, not as evidence of causal nexus. But the court did find there, and you're not, you're not um, disputing that there was a violation of the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act in this case, right? We are not appealing the injunctive order, no. And to find a violation of the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act, it has to show that there were misrepresentations that were intended to be relied upon. And so don't we have to start from the place that, Minnesota, that the schools put out information that was intended to be relied upon and that it was false? Because that, that's, you couldn't get a finding of violation of the Minnesota Consumer Fraud Act without that. It is a, it is a much... Um, lesser standard to make the first finding as to whether or not the statements were put out with the intent that others rely on. For wrongful conduct, the court can make that determination regardless of whether any student relied. But implicit in that, isn't it, wouldn't you agree that implicit in that is that those, at least some of those materials then, they couldn't make that finding if some of those materials were not actually put out to the public. Your argument is some of these were not really, they were drafts, some of these were never seen by students, but isn't it implicit in that finding that you're not disputing that at least some of the materials which the court found to be false and misleading were actually put out to people because they did it with the intent to make people, I mean, how, how would you find that there was an intent that people rely upon them if they were never put out to the public to be relied upon? The court can make the, can reach the conclusion that the advertisements were put out with the intent that those might, that others might rely on them. However, that is a distinct question from whether or not anyone actually did see those documents well, and relied I, on I them. I just was understanding your argument to say there's nothing in the record to show that any information was put out to the public that was false and misleading. And that's what you were just arguing, and I, I don't think that can be sustained in light of the finding on the consumer product violation. I, there is not a finding. The court could not make a finding that any of those marketing materials were actually shown in any particular market or were actually seen by any particular consumer. That is what I was intending my argument to be. I agree that the court did conclude that the, that the wrongful conduct was put out with the intent that others would rely. That is different than saying someone did rely. Counsel, can, can I just, you started out by talking about this being a statutory interpretation case. Can I just take you back to the language of the statute? Could you, could you point to to us um, the language in the statute that you think is violated here or, or that the, the district court's order is in, inconsistent with? Yes, Your Honor. The language I think that is most relevant from a statutory interpretation perspective is the injured by language in subdivision 3A of the Minnesota Attorney General statute. What the district court did here was created a standard for causal nexus that effectively changed that injured by language and turned it into a might be injured by language. So when the, court, when the district court created an inevitable and foreseeable standard, it did two things. With the word inevitable, that word is a strict liability word. It suggests that any person that enrolled would be harmed regardless of their individual circumstances. Foreseeable is a word that looks at what might happen or what could have happened. But in these, I'm going to call them mini-trials, <laughs> I mean, there's going to be litigation about whether the people, the students, were injured by. So what's the, what's the big deal, I guess? I mean, I understand it's a big deal to go through thousands and thousands of these mini-trials, but, but how is that inconsistent with the statute? 
the individual mini trials are a violation of the school's due process. There would, the state brought a parents patriot case under subdivision 3A. It was required to prove every element of its case at trial. If it was sufficient for the state to come forward and say it proved wrongful conduct, and then we can reserve for a later date a discussion of each individual claim, that, that would completely pervert the rule. It would effectively convert a parents patriot claim into hundreds of individual claims. And the state does not have standing to pursue hundreds of individual claims. To get the benefit of parents patriot, the state needed to prove its case parents patriot as a plaintiff under subdivision 3A. But its case is a case of equitable restitution. So in some sense, conceptually, what the state is doing with these mini trials is to say, okay, we have found this pervasive, you know, and you dispute that, I get, but we found this pervasive fraud out there and that these were made to actual students and students paid tuition in the belief that they were going to become police officers. So that's kind of the factual setup we have. And then the open questions, as was found by the district court, is how many of these students are there and how much did they pay in tuition and loans and those types of things. To come up with their ex equitable restitution amount, which is really, in some senses, to kind of give, to you know, provide some relief to the individual students, but from a different perspective, what they're trying to do is say, we got to figure out how to take the, prof the wrongful profits away from the these schools. We shouldn't let the schools benefit as a result of their fraud. And to figure out that, they'd have to figure out those exact two things. So I, I have a little bit conceptually a problem with equating these, these with many damages trials. In some sense, I think what's going on is the state is trying to capture the equitable restitution. And then instead of keeping the general fund, they're going to distribute it out to the individual students who were harmed as a result, which they have clear power to do. So how, how do you kind of respond? I mean, that, that seems to me that the, the open questions is not whether there was causal reliance particularly or causal nexus, but what the court was saying is we just need to figure out what the amount of this restitution should be so we can take away these ill-gotten profits. With respect to restitution, I'll just start with that. Subdivision 3A still requires for someone to obtain equitable remedies, they still need to be an individual injured by the conduct. But, this, but the state attorney general has powers beyond subdivision 3A. The state is pursuing restitution in this case pursuant to subdivision 3A. And their parents patria power. Right, but they would be required to follow 3A in order to obtain restitution. It's still important to know. Why would they be required to follow 3A to get restitution, not just under their parents patria power? Because 3A governs under what circumstances they can get restitution in this particular statute. But don't they have a power beyond the statute that's a parents patria power that also includes the ability to get restitution? And isn't restitution, like injunctive rest, isn't equitable restitution part of the equitable relief they can get under the injunction part of the statute, subdivision 3? The state has never articulated its claim the way Your Honor is articulating it now, and the court did not award equitable restitution for ill But I think they gains. did, because the court said repeatedly that this isn't an individual, the state has never been seeking individual damages. And as I understood that, it's the argument that, in fact, they're seeking this equitable restitution, which could lead to individuals getting recovery if the student was harmed. But it seems like the state was very clear throughout this litigation that they weren't actually seeking individual damages, but rather this broader equitable restitution. If the state was seeking a broader equitable restitution in the form of paying students back their tuition, as it is, that is what it has articulated as its restitution, it was required to prove who was entitled to that restitution and how they were harmed at trial. That is what was required. To reserve that for a later date was inappropriate. 
if the state had evidence as to what that restitutionary fund should have been, the, the time to present that was at trial. To reserve that for a later date, what the district court effectively did was said, the state didn't have evidence of causation and harm at trial. It acknowledged as much in its order. The state did not prove causation or harm at trial. So it reserved for a later date so a I, review. Okay, just stop right there. The, the, the court actually did conclude that there was a causal nexus for all of these people. That was one of their legal conclusions. Now, you're challenging that because you're saying there can't be a presumption. I understand that. But they did find that there was causation. What they're trying to figure out now, and, and in, the, in the order, as I recall it, they were very clear that there's really two steps here. We have to find out the causal nexus. We have to determine that, which, they, which the district court did. And we can have a dispute over whether they did that appropriately. And I think that's a, a good question. I mean, a very difficult question. But if we conclude that there is a causal nexus, what they're doing with the mini trials and what the court said in its order was actually just to figure out what these amounts were, how many students there were and how much they paid in their costs to figure out what this pool of restitution should be. I, mean, that's how the, I think that's how, the, that's how I read their order, the district court's order. The court did conclude there was causal nexus, but the only way it was able to do that was by creating the inevitable and foreseeable standard, which was so broad, it encompassed everyone. The only evidence in the record was from the 15 individual students. And the problem is, is that none of those 15 individual students could testify about the experience of any non-testifying students. So the district court, when I say the district court did not have evidence of who was harmed and how, that's because the state did not offer that evidence. So what do you say about group health where they say, where the court says in group health that there's no requirement of individual reliance and then they distinguish Thompson and Parkhurst, so the, the, the two federal district court cases that basically prior to that case had said we can't have a class action here because you need proof of individual reliance and this court said no, that's not right. You actually don't need evidence of individual reliance. No one has ever argued in this case that individual reliance was required from all 1,200 students for the state to prove its that, case. That's fair. So proof of individual testimony of their reliance was not needed. Uh, that's what the court basically said in group health. That's true. Actually, I think it's important to think about exactly what group health did, was confronted with. The circumstances that group health was addressing was that the defendant was arguing that individual reliance from every single consumer was required. And what the court found was that no, you did not need, in cases where you had a larger group of consumers, you did not need to present individual reliance from all. But the court then said, that doesn't mean you are relieved of proving causation and harm for the remaining, remaining population of plaintiffs. It also doesn't mean that you can absolutely use a small number of consumers to prove the whole. You still need to present evidence of the whole. The state has sort of flipped it on its head to say, well, group health says that we can prove, we can use individual consumer testimony. And yes, that is true, you can. But you cannot automatically extrapolate from a small group of consumers to a large group of consumers, especially in a case like this one where there was an expert who testified and the district court found credible. But, but, but counsel, I'm, I'm having trouble with that analysis because one of the things the court says in, I mean, in your brief on page 27, you rely on, on the language uh, on page 13 where it says, therefore, in a case such as this, it will be necessary to prove reliance. But then the court goes on to say that the true disagreement in the case is between the, between the parties centers on how this causation element must be shown. So there's, there's an acknowledgement and a holding that you've got to show causation. But then they, they sort of say, well, but the discussion is how it's to be shown. And the entire rest of the opinion says the how it's to be shown 
is you don't have to rely, you don't have to have individual um, reliance. And I'm, I'm looking at um, the statement on page 14 where it says, more to the point, in cases such as this, where the plaintiff's damages are alleged to be caused by a lengthy course of prohibited conduct, which the district court found here, it's the comment that, that uh, opposing counsel made at the beginning of his argument about this pervasiveness finding. Um, uh, that, that affects a large number of consumers. The showing of reliance that must be made to prove a causal nexus need not include direct evidence of reliance by individual consumers. That's how, so how, what do we deal with that language? What do we do with that in First, context of your argument? I want to address the pervasive misconduct uh, discussion because I think it informs the answer to your question, which is under what circumstances can you use individual testimony and under what circumstances do you need something broader? If, when, the court, when this court reads the district court's order, you will not find a finding of pervasive, widespread, systematic, wrongful conduct in connection with criminal justice. You will not find a finding that the conduct was egregious or deliberate or intentional. The district court did not make those findings. So when counsel describes the, the wrongful conduct in connection with criminal justice as any of those things, those findings were not made by the district court. You also will not find any finding or discussion of a uniform interaction uh, with the product or with the service by all the consumers. So when you're talking about, and I know Your Honor mentioned Alpine Air earlier in discussions with counsel, Alpine Air was a circumstance in which the air purifier box, the box for the air purifier, had a false statement on it. Every consumer interacted with the product in the same manner. Every consumer saw the product read the statement. How do we know every consumer read the statement? Well, it was on the box. So you, you assume if they received the box that there is a statement on the box. So that we is, can make an assumption that if the statement is made, you can assume that the person saw it. Where there is evidence in the record that each consumer interacted with the product in a uniform fashion, yes. That is not the evidence in this record. Counsel, Even, i got to bring you back, um, if you could clarify for me, because I know you've said there's nothing in the findings about pervasiveness, but I'm looking at finding uh, 148, which is, starts on page 99 and then goes on to page 100, where the court is discussing some of the testimony of the expert and specifically says um, that the, not, there was no reliance not only on student testimony, but testimony of several former employees of defendants, as well as testimony of defendants' managers, solicitations and mass advertising, internal training materials to establish the pervasiveness of defendants' false and deceptive practices, referring back to some of the findings in the summary judgment. So can you address that for me? I, I read that, um, that the, the court did make a finding related to pervasive. That particular finding, Your Honor, deals with what the state was relying on for the entire case, for the entire case. So we're talking about all 28,000 students, five different or four different allegations of wrongful conduct across six years and almost 20 campuses. And that's important because I think when you're talking about this one narrow area, because the district court rejected three of the state's four allegations of wrongful conduct, when you're looking at just criminal justice, what you will not find is a finding that specific to criminal justice, there's, there's pervasive systematic fraud. And that's because the district court did not have the evidence of a systematic widespread wrongful conduct. What it had was individual anecdotes from 15 students. And that takes me back to Justice Hudson's question about circumstantial evidence and surveys versus individual testimony. 
where, what the court and group health said was, where you have a, a longer period of time where there's more consumers, you, you don't have to call every consumer and have them testify individually. You have at your disposal other options to prove causation and harm for that larger population, such as market surveys, consumer research, things of that nature. So the state here had the option to present other evidence so that it could have evidence in the record of non-testifying students. It just chose not to present that evidence. Council. Council, what about findings like um, that the schools advertise their associate degree as sufficient for a career in, as a probation officer or a parole officer? So you were advertised, the school was advertising that their program would qualify students to enter those fields. That wasn't true. And there are a number of findings like that. Yes, Your Honor, and those findings are consistent with wrongful conduct, which is what the court found. And when you have evidence of wrongful conduct that is not connected to any harm visited on any consumer, then the appropriate remedy is an injunction. But to go the next step further and provide restitution or money damages, there has to be harm and there has to be causal nexus. And that should have been proven at trial. When the district court imposed a rebuttable presumption after the fact, it effectively admitted that the state had not proved its case for its participant population. If the state had proved its case, then causation and harm would already be proven for the entire plaintiff population, and there would be no need for individual mini-trials on the issue of liability. Council, about 10 minutes ago, you uttered the, the term due process. Um, what is the due process violation here? Is it the rebuttable presumption, or is there something more about the claims process that violates due process? The rebuttable presumption is a due process violation. The claims process is also a due process violation because the time to present that evidence was at the trial. The state had 17 days of trial to prove its case. It is a violation of due process to then convert those claims into individual claims and try them in a separate process without and a judge. what's your authority for that proposition? Do you have any case that's analogous, reasonably close on point that would suggest that creating a claims process is a due process violation? Nothing beyond the cases that say the elements of the claim must be proven at trial. I would note that the, the restitution process here, and I think this is an important point, is not actually supported by either Rule 53 for special masters yeah, or subdivision Those 3C. are not due process arguments. I just wanted you to focus well, on due process. To the, extent the, to the extent the process is created outside the rules, it would be a violation of due process. Oh, I see your point. Okay, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Gilbert, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. I want to take us back to the law real quick here. Um, and, and I know uh, the justices have referred to the law and quoted from group health, but um, it, it's important to, I, I think, reiterate what the law is and what counsel was saying is not consistent with the law. Um, the Alpine Air case affirmed in 1993, which this court affirmed in 1993, provided restitution to all consumers in a consumer fraud case by the attorney general based on the district court's finding of a pattern and practice of deceptive and misleading behavior, which is exactly what happens here. It did not require a showing of individual reliance by any consumers, and this court, this court, the Minnesota Supreme Court, stated in its opinion, in passing consumer fraud statutes, I'm sorry, this was from the Court of Appeals, in passing consumer fraud statutes, the legislature clearly intended to make it easier to sue for consumer fraud than it had been to sue for fraud at common law. In group health then, in 2001, 
the, this court quoted from Alpine Air and similarly concluded that the legislature intended to broaden the availability of redress under Minnesota's misrepresentation and sales laws. So what do we do with the language in group health? And I'm quoting here from the um, Mika's brief from the chamber. The HMOs must establish a causal nexus between their alleged damages and the conduct of the defendants alleged to violate the statutes. I, I hear opposing counsel saying, what happened here is the state had ample opportunity to provide that causal nexus and didn't. Well, that's what counsel says, but that's not accurate. And in terms of the amicus brief of uh, the chamber, it doesn't refer to all of the relevant language in the group health case. In that case, this court ruled that in cases involving, quote, a lengthy course of prohibited conduct that affected a large number of consumers, close quote, Proof of causal nexus, quote, need not include, need not include direct evidence of reliance by individual consumers. So this court That's actually rejected that, conceded, that proposition. That is conceded by opposing counsel, and they point to other ways in which it could be proven and say that didn't happen here. And then the court said, to your point, Your Honor, rather a causal nexus can be shown by other methods of proof such as circumstantial or other direct evidence. And this is a paraphrasing, but, but the point is, they said it doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be one iota of individual reliance by a consumer. It but can, so let's just get to the end yeah. here. What did this, how did the state prove? I mean, you're not arguing we didn't have to prove causal nexus. No, no, Your you're Honor. You're saying we did prove causal nexus. So you got the 15 students, and then what else do you have? We, we have the 15 students, the pervasiveness finding by the court, the, the causal net, that, that most prospective students wanted to be police and uh, probation officers who uh, enrolled in the criminal justice program, that the marketing was designed to cause prospective students to meet with an administrative admissions representative, and then respondents instructed the admission representatives to recommend the criminal justice program to any student who wanted to be a Minnesota police officer. Council, can we hang and hang on, sorry, what else? What else? I just want you to get through your list okay, here. Okay, yes. That respondents failed, they not only affirmatively misrepresented, but they also failed to disclose the material facts that the program didn't satisfy any requirement, any of the requirements necessary to be a Minnesota police officer, and a two-year degree was not sufficient to be a probation officer in Minnesota. That, the court found that, that they did not disclose material facts. And then I referred to the widespread misunderstanding. I mean, this all goes to the systematic fraud. Justice Hudson. It, I, I, Thank, there's more, but, but go ahead. I apologize for interrupting, Chief. Yeah. Where is that pervasiveness finding? Because uh, Ms. Anthony just stood up and said to me, there is no such finding. Uh, Where is that? The pervasiveness of finding, Your Honor, Is, is, is uh, your, is in the court's findings, and, and I, Justice McKee quoted from it, and, and it's in the court's findings, and it does refer back to the summary judgment findings, but it was an acknowledgment, as I've already decided, so, that this was pervasive fraud. Well, what do you make of uh, Ms. Anthony's argument, though, that that was not related to the criminal justice program, but to all of the programs? Your Honor, to the extent it might have been referring to all the programs, the only program they found to have been wrongful was this program. 
was the criminal justice program, how they marketed that program. And it, but as I understand their argument, her argument is that they found it was wrongful because of some of these other things, but that that pervasiveness ne does not necessarily say that it was pervasive in the criminal justice program. And so what's your response to that? Yeah, my response to that, Your Honor, again, is that the court found, and there's lots of different findings about all of the fraudulent conduct that relates to that program. And it's all very consistent with the court's finding that it was pervasive in terms of that fraudulent conduct. It's specific, it, it, I understand your point. It doesn't specifically say it relates to the criminal justice program in that particular finding, but other findings do. They say that, that he just itemizes all of the fraud. He calls it bad faith. He calls it knowing on the part of them that they, they, they should have known and they did know that you couldn't be a Minnesota police officer by going through this program. He itemized what the school tried to do to convince the post board to certify them. At the same time, they're trying to convince the post board to certify them uh, as, as a program that can actually qualify students to be a Minnesota police officer. They were not certified, and they were still enrolling students in this program. Counsel. I mean, it goes on and on in terms of all the findings that show the pervasiveness, which is consistent with the statement that the court made. Counsel, how do you respond to opposing counsel's argument that the claims process violates due process because it's essentially a process outside the rules of civil procedure? Um, I, I don't think there's any merit to that, Your Honor. That makes no sense to me. It's inconsistent with group health which specifically provides for presumption. It's inconsistent with the FTCA case law that provides for a presumption. No, I'm not talking about the presumption. As I understood her argument, it, there was a due process argument about the presumption. Yeah. There's also a due process argument about the fact that a claims process has been established oh, that okay. really isn't moored in the Minnesota rules of civil procedure. I, I see what you're saying, Your Honor. Well, first of all, it is really authorized by the rules of civil procedure because a court can bifurcate a damages proceeding, which is what the court did here. And the court was very clear, and we set this out in our briefing as well, that he anticipated a damages proceeding. He also acknowledged... You mean an equitable restitution proceeding? Well, Your, Your Honor, now, it's semantical, but... Well, um, you, you made that. You I have made, made that, that argument. In some ways, the whole thing is a house of cards. It's not a house of cards. It's, it's, it is in the form of restitution, but it allows for the collection of monetary relief. Let's say it that way. And... Um, under the circumstances, again, a claim process was well within the discretion of the court to provide for that process so that students could make a claim, which is what they're doing. The court did not abuse its discretion. I don't even think the other side is arguing that they abused their discretion. But in terms of the, the, the question, Your Honor, about the due process, um, the, the court found there was a causal nexus. And only as part of this process did it recognize that the circumstances justifying a presumption were warranted as part of that process. Counsel, if we get rid of the presumption, then how is this case going to go forward in the state's view? It, it would just go forward uh, with people filing claims, um, the state and uh, the schools arguing over whether they're entitled to relief or not. And then uh, Judge Rosenbaum is going to have to decide how to resolve that dispute. With and a so, presumption, so it frankly, make, it, it would make a difference only if the evidence was in equipoise, and then you had to apply the presumption, right? Your Honor, I mean, what are the odds lawyers, <laughs> lawyers can be creative in terms of what kind of arguments they might want to make in opposition. Frankly, I think this should be a no-brainer. 
um, just because of the nature of the fraud. Um, but it, this case has been going on for years. And there's been arguments made um, that uh, have helped delay that case. So and can I, but if, if in fact we don't have a presumption, then presumably, well, maybe take a next, maybe to take it a next step further, that there's no causal nexus proven here then. Is there a due process problem with having many trials without that finding? You know, so, yeah, again, so I mean, you're making an argument that we can do the claims process anyway, but do, do due process issues come up in that context? Um, they can, but we think they're provided for here because there's the ability to get documentation from the students, for example. There's ability to contest someone's uh, eligibility to obtain um, relief. But um, you haven't proven the actual claim before you get to the claims process. Except the court has found causal nexus. The court, In my hypothetical, they haven't. Oh, if the court hasn't right. found causal nexus, um, then that would be part of the claim process. Uh, there would be argument over uh, is there a causal nexus, but again, to, to Justice Lillyhog's point, um, if someone were to attest, uh, were to swear to the fact that they went, they enrolled in the program because they wanted to be a Minnesota police officer, um, that should go a long way in proving the point that, that they are harmed. Thank you, counsel. Okay, thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.